It all happened in a moment. As far as most of the world was concerned, it was a moment not unlike any other moment. But it was a moment that would forever change the history of the world. For you see, in a moment, something happened that no one could ever have imagined. In a moment, something happened that nobody ever thought about happening. Because in a moment, in an instant, the all-powerful one made himself breakable. In a moment, in an instant, he who had become, who was spirit, became pierceable. In a moment, in an instant, the one who was bigger than the universe became an embryo. And in a moment, in an instant, the one that had sustained the entire world by his word became dependent upon a young girl. It was a moment that the world wouldn't really recognize at the moment, but it was a moment that forever changed history. God as a fetus. God with eyebrows and elbows and two kidneys and a spleen. Stretching against the walls of amniotic fluid, God came near. He came not as a flash of light or an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a simple, sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured. They were callous. They were dirty. There was no silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. And were it not for some shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for some stargazers, there would have been no presence. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. And if the synagogue leader had just known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. But one thing's for sure. While he was completely divine, he was also completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light almost seems irreverent or disrespectful. It's much easier to keep the humanity of Jesus out of the incarnation, but that's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to clean the manure from around the manger or wipe the sweat from his eyes or pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb. There's something about keeping him divine that makes him distant, packaged, and predictable. But don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. John 1.14 says this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Word, God, 
Jesus, the one who was, as it tells us in verse 1, in the beginning, at the beginning, with God, was God. He became one of us. The Word became flesh. There are probably no more astounding words in all of human history than the Word became flesh. That God took the form of a baby. Last week we started a series called The Invasion and we talked about the God qualities of Jesus. And the truth is, it is easier sometimes for us to discuss the God qualities of Jesus than it is for us to discuss the human qualities of Jesus. And so today I want to talk in depth about the human qualities of Jesus. That John 1.14 passage, break that out of what it means that he became one of us. And the first thing we see here is that the Creator became a slave to His creation. I mean, this is just hard to imagine that the person who spoke into existence the world in which we live decided, it tells us in Philippians chapter 2, to humble himself and become one of us. What it actually says in Philippians 2 is, He who was in the very form of God did not consider godliness something to be grasped onto, but humbled himself, taking the very form of a slave. Now, we don't use the word slave a lot around here, and part of that is to deal with the connotations that come from the history of slavery in the deep south and here in the United States, and it was a horrific thing to be a part of that institution here. But in the New Testament, slavery is talked about a lot. And what you see in the New Testament is oftentimes we are, we are asked, we are challenged to make ourselves slaves to God, to the people whom we serve. And it tells us in Scripture that the reason God can demand that of us is because God has done that Himself. He became one of us. Now it says in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself or he humbled himself or that he got rid of things. I don't think that an understanding of that is that he stripped himself of any deity. It's that to the deity that he already had, to the godliness he already had, to being God that he already had, he added on a layer of us. When John wrote that the word became flesh, the word flesh in their Society would have had a very important connotation. It would have meant evil. Now, John's not saying that Jesus became evil, but there were these group of people that believed that any flesh was evil. And so if Jesus really came in the flesh, he must have been evil. John said that's not the case. But it is the case that he became one of us. I just want to tell you right from the beginning, I don't have a clue how Jesus was fully human and fully divine but I believe it. I don't have a clue. There have been wars literally fought over this. There have been discussions over this. You know, sometimes in Baptist churches, we think we have heated uh, business meetings, but there were some serious meetings about what it meant that Jesus was fully God and fully man. They come up with this term to describe the two, to basically say this is true. We don't understand it, but it's true. And it, they called it the hypostatic union. All right? Say that with me. Hypostatic union. Now, I know you were excited this morning to come to hear about the hypostatic union 
at Christmas. In fact, tomorrow when you're at work, I want you to tell somebody at school, so they say, what happened yesterday? Well, I went to church and we learned about the hypostatic union and it changed my life. Right? The hypostatic union is just a fancy theological way to say that God exists fully human, fully God, and we don't know how to explain it. In fact, that's one of the important things to understand in Scripture is that this Creator, Jesus, is fully God. But sometimes I think it's easier, like I said, to understand that than the second thing, which is this. Jesus is fully human. Fully human. I was thinking about that phrase, that Jesus is one of us. And I thought, well, well, what does that mean? What, what does it mean that he's one of us? I came up with four ways that I think we can know that Jesus was like us, that Scripture teaches he was like us. And the first is this, Jesus was like us physically. What I mean by that is he had a heart that pumped blood through his body. He had skin. He had a face. He had eyes, nose, mouth. He was physically like us. Now, you realize that Jesus probably on the outside did not look a whole lot like us. I mean, he came from the Middle East area of the world. In that day and time, the average male was about five feet tall. So he would have been shorter than most of us would normally think of males being. But as far as his physical characteristics, he was physically like us. He behaved physically like us. He got hungry. He got tired. He needed a nap. He needed food. There were moments when he... Uh, he, he would do things, and he was body would get weary. When he was a baby, he had physical needs. And when babies have physical needs, what do they do? They cry. So Jesus cried. Now, I don't want to ruin a Christmas carol for you, but away in a manger when it says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, is a bunch of fooey. All right? Any of you parents ever had a baby that didn't cry? Don't raise your hand because I will be jealous. All right? We're about to have a little girl. A month from now, we're supposed to have a little girl. And here's the thing I know. I don't know a lot about her. I don't know if she'll have hair. I don't know if she won't. I don't know what her face will look like. I don't know if she'll look like me or like Susan. We're praying she looks like Susan. I don't know. But I know this. We bring her home from the hospital and we lay her down in her bed. About three hours after she has been laid down in that bed, she will get hungry and she will cry. A lot. And she will not stop crying until she gets whatever need is met. And that usually develops another need that has to be taken care of. And the crying is constant. When Jesus was a baby, he cried. He had needs. Physically, he was like us. One pastor said that he was asking at a conference, How do you know Jesus was a man? How do you know Jesus was fully a man? And the student raised his hand and he said, I know. Tell me, how do you know Jesus was fully a man? He said, because he spit. And he said, well, I didn't mean, was he a man like a man or a woman? I mean, he goes, I know what you meant. He said, but men do spit. And I know Jesus is a man because he spit. And he said, I guess that makes sense. Remember the story, right? He's healing somebody. He takes out some dirt. He spits in the dirt. Rubs. It. If you look at the King James, it may be spat in the dirt. I don't know. He or spitteth. He uh, he takes it. It's my little King James. My favorite King James version is. We'll talk about the story of Lazarus in a minute. When they say Jesus, you can't raise him now. He's already been dead three days. He 
stinketh. That's what it says in the King James. So maybe Jesus spitteth on the ground and he mixes it up and he puts it on the guy's eyes. Well, the truth is, he, you know, he did spit. He was like us physically. Secondly, he was not only like us physically, he was like us intellectually. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus was just as smart as you or that he was not as smart as you. I'm not questioning his IQ. What I do know is Scripture teaches that he had to learn. Now, I don't understand how the one who has all knowledge has to learn, but Scripture says he grew in wisdom, knowledge, favor of God and man. He grew in his understanding, wisdom and stature, favor of God and man. The idea there is he literally had to um, learn, memorize, be taught certain things. Now, he was advanced in his learning. I mean, at the age of 12, he's teaching, but that was because of his study. I used to think, you know, the temptation account when Jesus is there in the desert and, and Satan starts tempting him, he starts quoting verses from Deuteronomy back to Satan. I used to think that Jesus, when I was growing up, I thought Jesus was kind of like a, he had a computer in his mind. And when Satan said stuff, it was like keywords would just flash in his mind and suddenly all the information was available to him. Kind of like a, a mind of Google, right? But Scripture teaches that he had to learn those verses and had to know the right ones to use at the right time. He was like us physically. He was like us intellectually. He was like us emotionally. Scripture tells us that he had joy, that he had sorrow, that he was constantly aware of the things that were going on around him. And the last thing, he was like us spiritually. I mentioned the temptation account and what Scripture tells us there is that Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him. The Holy Spirit took him out there for him to be tested, and Satan comes along and tempts. And there's been a lot of discussion in the history of the Christian church about whether or not Jesus could have sinned. My personal interpretation of that is this. If Jesus could not have sinned, it's not real temptation. And so it's a spiritual testing I think his biggest moment of testing, his biggest moment of temptation came in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's there and he's praying and he says, Lord, I don't want to do this. If there is any other way, I want you to do it some other way. But if it's your will, I'll do it. In that moment, in spite of what his physical, intellectual, and emotional needs were telling him, he had to make a spiritual decision, much like you and I have to make on a regular basis. Now, that spiritual decision had a little more consequence than some of our spiritual decisions, but it was a spiritual decision. And when you look at that list of the ways that Jesus was like us, there's only one way really he was not like us in his human form, and that is that he didn't sin, right? It tells us in the New Testament that he who knew no sin became sin. So he knew no sin. He did not sin. People say, well, see that he's different than us. He's not human. The truth is, because he did not sin, Jesus is perhaps more human than we are. Remember in the garden, God creates Adam and Eve, creates them for the purpose of living in a relationship with him and not sinning. Right? They messed up the plan when they sinned. 
So Jesus is the only human that has ever lived that has not sinned, which makes him more human than you. He's one of us. Now I want to tell you, as you begin to look through this, you really can, can uh, blow your mind a little bit. Now, up on the screen is something called a fractal. Anybody ever know what a fractal is? Anybody know? Fractal, one of the things about a fractal is the more you look at it and the more you zoom in and get in the detail, instead of becoming simpler, it becomes more complex. Okay? And so this picture, even though from you it looks like some swirly things or two octopuses fighting or something, if you look at it and go deeper, those little blue dots are actually complex little things inside of it. And if you go inside those blue dots, they're more complex inside of that. And there are now mathematical computer formulas to develop these fractals. Well, I can just tell you, understanding the hypostatic union is like a fractal. You got that? There's a line for the work tomorrow, all right? Because understanding how Jesus can be fully God and fully man gets more and more complex as you look into it. I mean, just think about it. When we talk about Jesus and his age, we talk about him in human terms of being... Um, he was 30 years old when he started his ministry. He was 33 when he was crucified and all of that. But yet we talked about him in terms of God. Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. Think about this. How do we date our calendar? This year is 2009, right? 2009 A.D. As opposed to what was before A.D.? B.C. So we say it's 2009 years, even though the dating's off a little bit, since Christ. In fact, if you look at how we date things, we'd say it'd be, you know, the Israelite army in 970 B.C., before Christ, right? Well, the truth is there was never anything before Christ. I understand we're talking about his birth, but you see how we talk in terms that mix the human and the divine. I I was thinking about the story of him on the Sea of Galilee when he's in the boat and he's tired and he goes and he takes a nap in the bottom. And then the storm rises up. We talked about this a few months ago. They go down and they get him. They bring him up to the top. And what does he do? He calms the storm with this great power, right? So you have this contrast of the one that's so worn out, he's laying asleep in the middle of a storm versus the one that has the power to calm it in an instant. As you go deeper and deeper into it, you find it more and more complex. And here's what I come out with. I don't understand it. I just believe it. That's where I am. Now, here's the thing. Scripture teaches it. You find it throughout. And what we find is that it didn't just happen to be a neat trick. I mean, Jesus didn't come to our world just for a neat trick to show everybody he could. There was a real purpose in it. And it was more than just saving us. See, I think sometimes we lose this in the story of Jesus that There are things that had to happen for him to save us. He had to be a perfect sacrifice. He had to shed his blood. But to endure for 33 and a half years on this planet, I don't think was required for the salvation process. So if it wasn't required for that period of time for him to be here, then why in the world did he spend so much time here? Here's the second thing to think about today. When it says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, it means that the Creator now identifies 
with His creation. It's an amazing thing to think that the Creator of the universe now identifies with His creation. He knows what we go through. He knows what it's like when a family member turns their back on you. He knows what it's like to lose someone that's very important to you. He knows what it's like to not be believed when you're telling the truth. He knows what it's like to be accused of something you did not do. He knows what it's like when people don't get what they ought to get. He knows what it's like to have people disappoint you. Some of his most famous words are are words that make more sense when you understand he understands. When he says, love your neighbor, he was speaking from an experience of had neighbors that tried to kill him and did. When he tells people that they might have to leave their family for the gospel, it was one that kissed his mother goodbye at the door and left his family for the gospel. When he says, pray for those who persecute you, they come from the lips of someone who was begging God to forgive the very people that were killing him. When he says, I'm always with you, the words of a God who in one instant did the impossible to make everything possible for us. You see, the greatest thing about what happened on that day when He became one of us is not that He can identify with us, it's that we can identify with Him. That the creation can now identify with His Creator. In Hebrews chapter 4, there's a passage of Scripture that describes the effects of what and happened because we have a high priest, a Savior, that has come to know us and has been here. And it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15 is just a great verse. This is one of those in your Bible. You can write it down and go underline it later. But this is just a great verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's an unbelievable thought that the God that rules this universe was so concerned that we would understand he understands us that he came for us and i just thought of these ways that god understands what we go through first of all he understands our struggles it tells us in scripture that he was tempted in every way as we are that in every way possible he was tempted and there is no temptation to man which God hasn't already provided us a way out. The truth is, Scripture teaches us that He is tempted just like we are. And so whenever you find yourself in a situation where you're tempted to do something you know is not God-ordained, that is not God-glorifying, that is not the right decision for your life, you understand that you have a Savior that understands the full brunt of temptation. In fact, it has been said that Jesus understands the full brunt of temptation better than any of us. Because we give in. He withstood. I was thinking about a book I read in high school, and I really try not to think a whole lot about books I read in high school. 
but I was thinking about the Odyssey the other day. How many of you have read the Odyssey? It may have been a few years ago, but you've read it, all right? Odysseus is the hero. He's got a crew of men. They're traveling back from war, and they're going through all these different obstacles, right? There's, a, there's all this stuff. Well, one of the obstacles they have to get through is getting past the sirens. And I don't know if you remember the story or not, but the sirens were these, these ladies that had these beautiful voices. And any time a sailor heard the siren's voice, it almost hypnotized them. And they would go off course, and their journey would be ended, shipwrecked, because of the siren's voice. So Odysseus tells his men to get earplugs in so that they don't hear the siren's voice, but he tells them something strange. Instead of just putting earplugs in himself, he tells them he wants to withstand the sirens to prove it can be done. And so he goes to the front, and they tie him at the front of the ship, and they have these ropes around him, and his guys have got the earplugs in, and they say, he says to him, if I start to wiggle, just pull tighter. And so over and over he tries to get out, and they pull tighter, and he hears the siren song, and they pull tighter, and eventually they get past the sirens, and they get through, and he proves that it can be done. Well, here's the deal. Jesus proved it without anybody holding the ropes. And sometimes when we're in our struggles, we like to talk to people that have gone through the struggle, the temptation, have given in and have come out on the other side. It's better to take an example from the one who's been in and resisted. He understands our struggles. second thing he understands is our sorrows. I mentioned Lazarus a few minutes ago. He and Lazarus are great friends, and Lazarus dies and Jesus goes to the tomb. And whether you interpret that that he's crying over Lazarus' death or he's crying over the fact that the people there don't believe he's able to raise Lazarus from the dead, either way, there is great sorrow in the life of Jesus. When he stands over Jerusalem and he sees the town and he sees their unbelief and he cries because he understands that they're going to miss their opportunity. He weeps over them. Jesus' own family one time came while he was teaching and tried to persuade him to quit. I mean, think about that for a minute. His own brothers come and say, why don't you just come home? Quit telling the people all this stuff. We know who you are. You're Jesus. You ever found sometimes your family's the hardest people to convince that you need to do something for the Lord? He knew what it was like to be rejected in his hometown. He went back to Nazareth, and it tells us in Scripture that he wasn't able to do miracles there because they didn't believe. He understands our sorrows. Here's the last thing. He understands our suffering. Isaiah 53 tells this picture of the suffering servant and of a king who is beaten and bruised for our iniquities, who is unrecognizable because of the suffering he has. I was thinking this week about those times of suffering in my life. Those times of suffering when either myself personally or people in my family are thinking we're going through very difficult times. And I don't know about you, but when I get real honest with myself in those moments of my deepest concern, in my deepest trials, my deepest tribulation, when I get there, One of the first questions in my mind is that simple question, why God? 
Why me? Why now? Why here? Why them? Why? And you know, there are a lot of times preachers get up and talk about how that you can give the answer to that question. And the truth is, I could give you a theological answer to that question. I could write it out all over the place. But when it happens in your life, theological answers and right guesses and all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. And for some reason, I had never really seen that, this, until this week, or the last couple of weeks I was studying through this material or looking over these verses. And I realized that when Jesus was at his greatest moment of suffering, the question on his lips was, why God? Remember one of the last seven sayings? He's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, hearkening back to Psalm 22, really is a psalm of why in the world is this happening to me? Why is bad things happening to me when I've been living for you? And so when you're in one of those why God moments, know you have a Savior that has asked the why God question. Not in any way disbelief, not in any way saying that he wasn't on board of what God was doing, but just uttering in the deepness of the suffering, why? The end of that Hebrews passage says an interesting thing. It says we have this Savior, this high priest that understands. It says, so let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, with assurance. What it basically says there is that we have someone fighting on our behalf. We have an advocate interceding for us to the Father. And I thought this week about really good mediation. Really good mediation is when two people need someone to help them come together, right? And in that mediation, you want somebody that's neutral. A good mediator is not one-sided, right? Especially if they're one-sided against you. They're not good. And what we have in Jesus is this perfect mix of a great mediator for us. Because he understands both sides. And so whenever you come to a place of real sorrow, real struggle, real suffering, know you have an advocate on your side because he's been here. You see, in a moment, God became man. The Word became flesh. And because he spent 33 years on this earth, He understands where you are, wherever that is.